0: Canon Press presents the weekly sermon from Christ Church, Moscow, Idaho. Copyright 2018. If you would like to find out more about Canon Press materials and products, you may call 1 800 488 2034. For a complete list of our products or to order online, please visit our website at canonpress.com. Enjoy the sermon. The text this morning is from Psalm 97. These are the words of God The Lord reigneth, let the earth rejoice. Let the multitude of isles be glad thereof. Clouds and darkness are round about him. Righteousness and judgment are the habitation of his throne. A fire goeth before him and burneth up his enemies round about. His lightnings enlightened the world. The earth saw and trembled. The hills melted like wax at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. The heavens declare his righteousness and all the people see his glory. Confounded be all they that serve graven images, that boast themselves of idols, Worship him, all ye gods. Zion heard was glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoiced because of thy judgments, O Lord. For thou, Lord, art high above all the earth. Thou art exalted far above all gods. Ye that love the Lord hate evil. He preserveth the souls of his saints. He delivereth them out of the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous, and gladness for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, ye righteous, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holiness. Our Father in God, we thank you for your word before us now. It's open to us, and we pray that you would open our hearts as well. Father, I pray that you would apply this word to us and our condition, our lives, in just the way that your spirit wants to do. I pray that you would make us pliable and compliant. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So many of the problems that confront us in the church today Uh, is made up of the fact that Christians diligently try to do the right thing, but they diligently try to do the right thing in the wrong category. They try guitar fingering, for example, on a mandolin. They try chess rules on a backgammon board. They apply the rules of French grammar to English. And for us to draw attention to this sort of mistake, it is a mistake, it's not to object to any of those things in particular. It's not an objection to to chess or to backgammon or to guitar or to the mandolin whatever it's not a, it's not an objection to any particular thing it's an objection to a misapplication something that belongs in one category being applied to an alien category a false category now this is the mistake that we are making whenever we try to make a difference out in the culture, when we want to make a difference in the business world or in the political world or in the realm of economics or arts, whenever, whenever we go, want to go out and make a difference for the sake of Jesus Christ, and our activity does not proceed directly from a vision of the Almighty Lord high and lifted up. If it's not a God-saturated vision, it's not going to have the impact that we want. It's going to have an impact, but it's going to have a false impact. We are, we are going to be acting on the basis of a true vision of God or a false one. We're either going to be acting on the basis of a vision of the true God or a false vision of the true God or a true vision of a false God. All right, so we're going to be doing something like that. And, and our vision of who God is is going to affect how we live in the world, and it is going to affect whether or not we make a mess. If we go out there and and apply a false vision of the true God or a true vision of a false God, we're going to be making a mess, and that is, in fact, what we have been doing. Everything that we do needs to proceed from an accurate vision of God as he is, God as he actually is. And in this psalm, we have a glorious presentation of God as he is. Keep in mind, as we read this description of God as he is, there is no way that a sinner can understand what is presented in Psalm 97 unless you are looking at it through the lens of our mediator, Christ. Christ is the one who enables us to see this. If, we, if we're not coming to God through Christ, we're not coming to God. We're fleeing from him in some way, shape, or form. So as we, as we turn to this psalm, let's ask God to have Christ give, give us his spirit so that we might see God the way he is. So God reigns, and the whole earth is called to rejoice because of it. Verse 1. Now notice, the sovereignty of God, the exhaustive sovereignty of God, the godness of God, is not something that should make us shake. It's not something that should make us tremble in a craven way. We tremble in an, in, uh, an awestruck way, but we don't, we don't tremble in a way that is miserable. Notice, God reigns, and the whole earth, all of the earth, is summoned to rejoice because of it. God reigns, therefore rejoice. God reigns, therefore, that's a good thing. God reigns, therefore, there is a blessing in it. His holiness is not what we might piously predict or assume. His righteousness and judgment, it says, are like clouds and great darkness. God's righteousness, God's judgment, are like clouds and great darkness. Verse 2. A fire precedes him and burns up his enemies. Verse 3. Lightning flashes, and the whole created order sees it, and the whole created order trembles because it sees it. Notice we see God and we rejoice. We see God and we tremble. This is the kind of trembling that is not slavish. In the presence of God, hills and mountains melt like wax in a hot fire. Verse 5. In the presence of God, hills and mountains melt. We have in our strength, we have trouble walking up one of those hills or mountains. We just all we all, we're we're sort of overwhelmed. We Great heroes are the people who, you know, the great hero who who made it up Everest first. He walked up the hill. We're we're talking about the God in whose presence all these mountains just evaporate. They melt. They they turn into liquid. The heavens preach, and as a consequence, everyone sees his glory. Verse 6. A curse then is pronounced because we turn naturally from the, the revelation of God in the natural order... We move from natural revelation to the subject of worship. So in verse 7 it says, "...confounded be all false worshipers, and all gods are summoned to worship the one true God." All the idols and all the spiritual beings behind those idols are summoned to bow down to the one true God. Now, when this is proclaimed, when this message is announced, Zion hears it and is glad... That's the response. The daughters of Judah rejoice, verse 8. That's the response. The response is gladness. Why do we rejoice with them? Because the Lord is exalted high above all the earth, verse 9. This transcendent sense of true worship has potent ethical ramifications. You that love the Lord, hating evil comes with it, verse 10. Do you love God? Then hate evil, verse 10 and hate speech comes with that incidentally all right if you love the lord you're going to hate evil and you're going to say so and when you say so someone's not going to like it and they're going to call they're going to call what you just said hate speech and you should say yes that's exactly what it was all right those who love god hate evil in this setting god delivers his people from those who return the hatred right back at them verse 11 We are summoned by him. Uh, Light is sown for the righteous, gladness for the upright, verse 11. And then we are summoned by him to therefore rejoice and to give thanks as we remember his holiness. So there are things in in this psalm that uh, you might think, oh, this is just a praise the Lord psalm when we're praising the Lord. Well, yes, we are. But there are things that are incongruous to our natural reflexes. There are certain things that we assume and we assume wrongly, and, the, and this particular psalm uh, sets us straight. Holiness, and this is the holiness of God is set before us in this psalm, holiness is not manageable. Verse 2, holiness is not manageable. Holiness does not come in a shrink-wrapped box. Holiness, and this is bad news for North American evangelicals, holiness is not marketable. You you can't package it. You can't sell it. Holiness is not tame. Holiness is not sweetsy nice. Holiness is not represented by kitschy figurines. Holiness is not smarmy. It's not unctuous. Holiness is not domesticated. Holiness is not domesticatable. But worship a God who is housebroken to all your specifications, a little lapdog God, and what is the result? If you if you worship a God that you can carry around, if you worship a God that you can control, what is the result? I'll tell you what the result is. Depression is the result, an irregular need for sedatives, and the worship of even smaller gods that you can carry around in a bottle. Better living through chemistry. We are a despairing generation. And we are a despairing generation because our God is too small. Our God is too tiny. Our God is manageable, controllable by us. And if we can manage and control a God, that means he's an idol, and if he's an idol, he cannot save us. It cannot save us. True holiness is wild. True holiness is three tornadoes in a row. Holiness is a series of black thunderheads coming in off the bay. Holiness is impolite. Holiness is the kind of darkness to make a sinful man tremble and to make a devout man tremble in a different way. Holiness beckons us to that darkness. But it's the kind of darkness where we do not meet ghouls and ghosts. It's not that kind of darkness. Rather, this is the righteousness of God. It is pitch black righteousness. And what does that tell you right off the the bat? It tells you that you are coming to a God that you can't manipulate. You cannot control him. You cannot tame him. You cannot use him for your purposes. He cannot be managed in that way. And of course, Bible, the Bible also tells us that God dwells in unapproachable light. Here it says that his righteousness is black, darkness. He, he, um, in, if, in order to approach him, we are approaching the dark God. So what is that? how do you reconcile that? Well, we are finite, and he is infinite. And in order to get some notion of the truth into our heads, God uses a series of metaphors. You don't, you don't set metaphors, line them up as though you're doing a problem in algebra or symbolic logic. What you do is you let the metaphor affect you. God dwells in unapproachable light. He's absolute purity. God dwells in darkness. And, and we cannot come in there and, and manipulate him or control him. Holiness is a consuming fire. Holiness melts the world. <laughs> it was a message about holiness that really would have been spe- spooky. So, I was somewhere. Where was it? <laughs> Holiness melts the world. When we fear and worship a God like this, what is the result? Gladness of heart. Zion heard all about it and was glad. Verse 8. That's the response. Zion hears all about it and was glad. This kind of thing makes no sense to the natural man. How is it possible for, to, to come to a God who dwells in darkness, whose holiness is awesome, who, who melts mountain ranges with his presence, how is it possible to come to a god like that and have the reaction be gladness well how could it not be think about this you are uh, you have troubles you have afflictions you have difficulties you have lots of them and you've got you've got, and you look up and they're great three tornadoes in a row yes but they're on your side right those tornadoes are on your side these thunderheads coming in off the bay, they're your reinforcements. They're not reinforcements to the enemy. All right, so if you're in a beleaguered fort somewhere holding out and all of a sudden you see a, an enormous army appear on the ridge and then the flag unfurls and you see that it's your people, it's your side, you what's the response? The response is gladness. It is not an occasion of sadness when we are come to the realization that we serve a God who has absolute power. He is good, and he has absolute power, and he is for us. God is for us. This is why it results in gladness. So, if if you worship a God who does nothing but kittens and pussy willows, a God whose marketing director favors Christian sunset poster art, then you will end in despair. You're going to end up in despair, not because kittens and pussy willows are a bad thing. God, God made those too. It, it's not. We're, I'm not maintaining that the devil made pussy willows. I'm not maintaining that the devil made glorious sunsets. God does gorgeous things. God does wonderful things. God creates uh, puppies that are cute. God did that, but He didn't do just that. He didn't do just that, and and you don't want to go the other way and have a God, God that's. Grim and dark and dour, and that's, that is not going to result in gladness either. The message is that God does it all. God is God over everything, in everything, through everything. Worship the God of the jagged edge, the God whose holiness cannot be made palatable for the middle-class American consumer, and the result is deep gladness. That is the result. Do you hear that? Gladness, not pomposity. And thank God, such gladness does not make us parade about with cheeks puffed slightly out or speak with lots of rotund vowels or strut with a sanctimonious air. Gladness, laughter, joy, these are to be set before you. This is a deep Christian faith and not what so many are marketing today in the name of Jesus. The tragedy is that in the name of relevance, the current expression of the faith in America is superficial all the way down, and therefore irrelevant in the highest degree. This means that there's a difference between a deeply rooted biblical gladness, on the one hand, that proceeds from a vision of God as he reveals himself to be, in his Son and through his word, God as he reveals himself to be. When we see that, we respond in a particular way. When we ignore that, we respond in another way. And that's the difference between gladness, deep, profound gladness, and a superficial happy, happy, joy, joy approach rooted in nothing much. If you, you do not want to be living the kind of life where some affliction comes upon you and you say, I know what, I'm going to tell myself a lie. I need to tell myself a lie. I need to go to a happy spot and conjure up an image about a, of a god who weeps for me, who's sorry for me but can't do a thing about it. I don't want a god feeling sorry for me, right? That uh, do you really want to live in a cosmos where you could actually get caught in the machinery and god would look on from a distance, not be able to do anything about it, but he would shed a tear? That's not a that's not god. That's not the god of the Bible. You need to understand that everything that happens to you is dispensed, comes to you from the holy hand of a loving Father, and it fits you perfectly. It fits your situation perfectly. Your, your trials are hand-tailored for you. Your afflictions are yours. God designed them. God doesn't back up a dump truck to the world saying, they need more troubles, let's just indiscriminately put them under a rock pile of more troubles. No? God dispenses them perfectly. God, and and he's doing it because that is precisely what you need. That is exactly what you need. And you know what else you need? You need to respond rightly to that trial. Because if you receive a trial and you respond wrongly, if you receive a trial and you're not thinking about who God is, and you respond wrongly to that trial, wrongly to that affliction, you know what that affliction is? That's exactly what you don't need. It was the last thing you needed. So what we do is is we take these things that come at us, that are perfectly designed for us, and we take these things that are designed for us and our circumstance, they're perfect for us, and we turn them into the last thing on earth that we needed. And we turn them into the last thing we needed by means of a bad attitude. So... Who God is, he's the one dispensing these, he's the one governing all my, everything about my life, he's the one who is doing this, and the response is gladness. And if you are glad in affliction, that's not the same thing as ignoring affliction, if you're glad in the middle of the combat, combat if you're glad in the middle of the battle because you know who God is, that gladness is a powerful and potent thing. If you are not, if you respond badly, then you're just going to sink. You're just going to, it's going to go poorly. So if we are glad the way we ought to be, what happens then? What's the next result? Well, it's the hatred of evil. And and this is a, <laughs> you might be thinking, oh good, finally a part of the sermon that we're going to apply to other people, you know, the, yeah, the when you learn it when you have a vision of god and you begin to hate evil it you begin here you begin with yourself that you, you don't start hating evil elsewhere you you get there because evil is to be opposed and resisted everywhere but you want to hate evil because if you see if you see what god's like what what happens when isaiah sees what god's like he has a vision of the lord high and lifted up and he says I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips he becomes aware of his own unholiness this is a holy prophet becoming aware of his own unholiness when peter get, when peter catches a vision of who jesus is when jesus did the miracle of the fish in the boat peter falls down and says depart from me i'm a sinful man you you i i don't belong here you don't belong with you don't belong with me So when we get a vision of God, the holy God, we we become acutely aware of what unholiness is like, and we become aware of what our own unholiness is like. So this is why an ethical application of the vision of the holy is most necessary. If we bypass this vision of who God actually is, the necessary result is going to be a prissy moralism, not the robust morality of the Christian faith. There's a, a moral, uh, someone who's in the grip of moralism is someone who wishes that he could be sinning that way, but can't because of what people at church would say or what a mom would say or what, uh, I, I don't want to get in trouble, and so I'm going to oppose what those people in the dormitory are doing because I secretly wish I could join them, and I can't, so I'm going to be mad at them, right, because I, because I can't be with them because I can't partake in their excesses, I'm going to be censorious, I'm going to condemn what they're doing because of a deep wish that I could be there with them. That's moralism. Moralism is willing to rebuke sin, but there's always a secret affinity between the person rebuking and the person being rebuked. That's moralism. Morality is something else entirely. The thing that separates moralism from morality is the knowledge of the holy. The thing that separates morality, true ethical behavior, what you are when nobody's looking, what you are when you're alone with God, and that's it. So that is morality. Moralism is when you're manufacturing your own little system. Knowledge of the holy is the thing that separates the two. Those who content themselves with petty rules spend all their time fussing about with hemlines and curfews and scruples about alcohol. But those who see this folly and go off in their own little libertine direction are no better. The former act as though their moralism is grounded in the dictates of a gremlin-like God who lives in the mezzanine or lives in the attic. But his word is law. Gremlin, gremlin God tells you, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. That's all. And then the, libertine, the libertines see that that's stupid, and they go off in another direction, aspiring to become the gremlin themselves. They they want to be the gremlin god in charge of their own decisions, so we want to re- we want to reject both of those responses and love the Lord, hating evil. Love the Lord, hating evil. And this hatred, let me say something about that. This hatred needs to be hissing hot. It, it, it hatred is not to be a lukewarm affair. You're you're not supposed to have this mild distaste for something that smells a little bit off. You should not want to be hauled off to be tried by the intoleristas for hate crimes when you only ever got up to the level of tut-tutting, right? And you would say, that's not likely. Well, think about it this way. When Lot was in Sodom and there was a mob on his front porch, the mob wanted to take his guests, the mob, in effect, wanted to rape the angels, wanted to rape his guests. Lot offered his daughters instead, which we can argue was not Lot's most shining moment, right? That was not Lot being uh, the stalwart one, but there was implicit tucked away down there. On the other hand, at the end of the day, when we consider all the factors, there was an implied criticism of what they were doing, right? They wanted to send out the angels, send out your guests so that we may have our way with them. And he offers his daughters instead. And that's an implied criticism. And what what do the residents of Sodom say? They say, this man is an alien. He comes in, dwells among us. Now he's setting himself up to judge us. There was an implicit criticism in what he just said. You have to tease it out. You have to deconstruct it. But there was a criticism. He was saying, in effect, don't abuse my guests. I want you to abuse my daughters. Instead, he was trying to be holier than thou. The And the, and the residents of Sodom sent an emissary up and knocked on the door and said, Judge not, lest you be judged. Because that's a verse that all unbelievers... Unbelievers run a secret vacation Bible school for all little non-believing kids growing up where they memorize... Um, memorize verses like judge not lest you be judged. They, I can't figure out where else they'd learn them. So they come and say, th- now think about this. These, this is a mob, all right, this is a mob on a man's front porch demanding the right to abuse the guests, and he, he has just this dim little light flickering And the New Testament says that Lot was righteous, and he really was grieved by the behavior of the people around him. But it was a flickering light. It was not a a blaze of uh, sunlight. It was just a flickering little light, and that was too much. If you're going to be hauled off for hate crimes, it shouldn't be that kind of a hate crime. It shouldn't be a little kind of teased-out hate crime. If they're going to get you, at least go out in a ball of fire. Was that... That was, that was hate speech, what you just did there. Yes, and I've got, some, I've got plenty more. I've got, more. I've got more coming. Go out in a ball of fire. Now, provided, remember a few weeks ago I reminded you that Jesus rebuked his disciples who wanted to call down fire from heaven and destroy, um, destroy a city because he said you don't know what spirit you are of. You want to make sure that the fire, whatever fire you've got, you want to make sure it's fire from the heavenly altar. But if you love God you will hate evil. If you love God, you're going to hate your own evil. If you love God, you're going to hate your own sin. If you love God, you're going to hate every kind of sin because every kind of sin destroys. Every kind of sin. Sin is a wrecker. Sin messes everything up. Sin never helps anyone or anything. So why is it bad to hate something that never helped anyone? Why is, it a, why is it a problem to hate something that's always, everywhere, universally destructive? Well, because it made me feel bad. The, your, the problem was that Lot hurt their feelings out there on the front porch. He hurt, he hurt their feelings. And that is the ultimate sin if you have no God. If there is no God within their mouth, then that's what it's going to boil down to. So, you that love the Lord hate evil. Those who love the Lord hate evil. And here's the potency of right worship. In this psalm, how should we define right worship? The answer is that right worship occurs when the congregation of God approaches him, sees him as he is, where the congregation has a vision of Almighty God as he is and responds rightly as he commanded, and that response is joy and glad submission. Joy, gladness, glad submission. Such worship necessitates turning away from all idols, verse 7, and turning to the holy God who cannot be manipulated. In this seeing, we see him truly, which is not the same thing as seeing him fully. No creature can do that. We can know the absolute, but we cannot know absolutely. If we knew absolutely, we would be God. So we, we cannot know absolutely, we cannot know God exhaustively, we cannot know God fully. But we can know God genuinely, we can know God truly, because he stoops, because he reveals himself. And when he reveals himself, he reveals himself not exhaustively, but he reveals himself accurately. He reveals himself in such a way that when we respond to him, we are responding to the true God in true worship. That's what we're called to do, responding to the true God in true worship. And in this psalm alone, just in this one psalm, what does right worship do? What does right worship do? What effect does it have? What are the results? The earth rejoices, verse 1. All the islands are glad, verse 1. His enemies are consumed with the fire that goes out before him, verse 3. The earth is illuminated by his lightning and trembles, verse 4. In the presence of the Lord and in worship, we are in the presence of the Lord. The hills melt, verse 5. The heavens preach and the people see his glory, verse 6. Idolaters are flummoxed, confounded, verse 7. The universal call to worship is even issued to the idols, verse 7. Zion hears and is glad and the daughters of Judah rejoice, verse 8. The name of God is exalted above every name, verse nine. The saints of God learn to hate what is evil and God preserves them from those who persecute them because they return the hatred, verse 10. Light and gladness are sown before us and gladness for the upright in heart, verse 11. His righteous people rejoice and are grateful when they remember his holiness. So here it is, we are up against it. We live in a dark time, we live in a dark generation. We are up against it. And they hate, they, they hate the ways of God. They hate his word. They hate his gospel. They hate even uh, the slightest whiff of true biblical Christianity. They hate it all. And they're powerful. They, they are settled everywhere. They, con- they seem to control uh, most of the organs of opinion, uh, the media. And we look at that and we go wobbly. We respond. There are many Christians who are, thank the Lord that they're doing this, there there are many Christians who take a stand against that kind of foolishness. They take a stand against that kind of evil. The problem is this. We are doing it in fear. We We are opposing them because we're afraid of them. We're opposing them because we fear man. We don't like that kind of man, and so we oppose that kind of man, but we're opposing that kind of man born out of fear. We need to be opposed. We need to be involved in, well, not just what we, not just what are popularly called the culture wars. We need to be involved far more in, far, many more fronts than just that, right? Um, culture wars. We need to be preaching the gospel. We need to be planting churches. We need to be doing all kinds of things, but all of it needs to proceed from gladness, not fear. Why are we losing? Because we're fighting afraid. That's why we're losing. We're fighting fearing. We need to fear God, not man. And if we fear God, if we see God, if we have a vision of God, we respond to him rightly, we are going to, we're going to be rejoicing. We're going to be glad. You say, but the world is so, it's, all the bad guys, uh, the bad guys seem to run everything. Well, what was it like when Psalm 97 was written? Were the bad guys running hardly anything then? No. The Christian faith is growing and expanding. Hundreds of thousands of people name the name of God through Jesus Christ. Churches are planted on everywhere. God's kingdom is growing and advancing. This is the thing. God's kingdom is coming. His will is being done on earth as it is in heaven. When we pray, when we say the Lord's Prayer, which we do every week, it's not thy kingdom stay. Thy will be done in heaven when we get there. <laughs> that's not what he told us to pray. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Where? On earth. That Why, that's here. That's here. On earth as it is in heaven. What does that mean? You can sum it up in four words. We win, they lose. But that's it. We win, they lose. And we don't win, not in our own strength, right? This is God, right? God, God is the one who makes the hills melt. God is the one whose presence with us makes the hills melt. If it's just us, nothing happens. We're just a religious club that meets on Sundays, and we have a few strange songs. That's all, that's, that's all we are, if there is no God with us. But Jesus Christ is Emmanuel. He's God with us. So, those who worship rightly will inherit the earth. Those who worship false gods cannot be anything but confounded. Those who worship the true God falsely are missing the scriptural call as well. So what is the worship of God? What is the worship of Jehovah in the name of his incarnate Son, in the power of his most Holy Spirit, result in? If we're worshiping God, if there is a true reformation and revival of worship, what does it result in? It it results in a right worship that is potent. In the face of a dour and despairing secularism, it ushers in what might be called the great gladness revolt, the revolt of gladness, where those people are set free from their sins. They're forgiven for their sins. They're put right with God. They see who he is. They, and, and God reveals himself in the preached word, in the sacraments, in the water. Christ is in the water. Christ is in the wine. Christ is in the bread. Christ is in the word. Christ is in the Psalms. And you, if you take Christ away, all you have, bread, wine, water, it's nothing. But if Christ is present, if Christ is present, Christ is present with you. And if Christ is present with you, then no one can stand against you. Nothing can happen that's outside of the will of the Father. Nothing can happen. You you can't be touched. Stonewall Jackson once said that his faith taught him uh, that he to, to feel as safe in battle as he was in bed. Right. Safe in battle as I was as I am in bed. Why is that? Because until God's appointed hour, you are immortal. And when that moment comes, if you love him, you don't you don't want to stay. You you don't want to leave a moment before he wants you to go. You don't want to stay a moment after he wants you to go. And that's fortunate because the, the, you're going to go when he wants you to go. Right? You're, you're going to be done. Your story is over when your story is over, and it's perfect. All the trials during that time are perfect, and your response to those trials, as you see. And, and mark this well, I'm not saying you've got all these trials and then you grab hold of something close and grit your teeth and go, Nrgh. that's stoicism. That's not, you don't want to be a stoic. You want to be a Christian and you, you want to respond to all these challenges and afflictions and trials and, and, uh, hills to climb. You want to respond to all of them as Christians who see that God is in it. God is in it because God is in it all. And he's t- he's told us this from Genesis through Revelation. He's told us this over and over and over again because we need to know. We need to be reminded. We need to be humbled. We want. We say, but if I were God, for which let's all take <laughs> pause for a moment and give hearty thanks that that's not the way, it is. If, I were, if I were God, we say, it wouldn't have gone this way. If I were God writing my story, it wouldn't have included that trial. It wouldn't have included that affliction. It wouldn't have included any of this stuff. My life would have been a whole lot more serene had had I been in charge of it. Yes, and you would have been insufferable. You would have been terrible, right? God God's dealing with you perfectly. God is dealing with us perfectly. He's shaped, we're right on schedule. He's not, there's nobody's behind. God is bringing his kingdom in right on schedule, perfectly. And we there's, there's two things, two ways to go. When you realize it, when you come to this realization that God is having his will with this world, he's growing his church in this world, he's advancing his kingdom in this world, and he's doing so in a way that cannot be hurried up or slow down by me or you, there are only two things that we can do. We can either grump along and not enjoy it, or receive it in faith and be glad. Right? That's, and that's, the, gladness revol- that's the, the great gladness revolt. And that kind of gladness, standing against all our adversaries, is the kind of gladness that is going to conquer the world. And that, that's what Jesus told us to do. All authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. Therefore, go, disciple the nations, all of them, disciple the nations, te- baptizing them, teaching them obedience, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. That is never going to be done by a fearful people. That is never going to be done by a fearful people. It will be done, is being done, and will continue to be, uh, it will continue being done by a glad and rejoicing people. Our Father and God, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for your word. We thank you for these promises. And Father, we lift our hearts up to you, knowing that you are receiving
1: us for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. One of the things we've heard this morning from Psalm 97 is that as we learn to love God, we are to learn to hate evil. This table teaches us to worship God and hate evil evil rightly here at this table we share the signs of an execution a broken body and shed blood but unlike any other execution or any other death in the history of the world the man who died had done nothing deserving of death he was innocent of every crime of every sin every stain he was betrayed by a friend and deserted by all the others he was falsely accused he was convicted of crimes he did not commit And the judge that sentenced him knew he was innocent. He was mocked, he was spat on, they hammered a crown of thorns into his head, he was whipped until his flesh was shredded, he was made to carry his own cross to the place of his execution, they gambled for his clothing, he suffered every injustice, every shame, every backstabbing word, every taunting insult, every turn of the knife, and he was perfectly innocent. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. This is the center of a righteous, burning hatred of evil. Why do we hate evil? Because it grieved and wounded our Lord. Because it struck and afflicted our innocent Lord. Because he who knew no sin was bruised for our iniquities. They did to him what our sin deserved. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. To know Jesus is to know him as the spotless lamb of God, the perfect one, the innocent one, the only righteous one, who was betrayed for you, deserted for you, falsely accused for you, unjustly convicted for you, mocked for you, beaten for you, bled for you, died for you. And this causes deep worship to well up inside you deep love deep loyalty deep devotion but also a deep and holy hatred of all evil because you love Jesus you hate all evil so this bread and wine this these are signs of his body broken blood shed for you remember and worship remember and hate all evil and so come and welcome to Jesus Christ in the night in which Jesus was betrayed he took bread and gave thanks so let's pray together Our God and Father, we praise you and we thank you that you condemned our sin in the body of your beloved Son. You poured out your wrath so that it was exhausted in him, so that there is none left for us. Father, we pray that you would teach us to rejoice in this and so love you and hate all evil. And we give you thanks in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. One of the things we've heard this morning... About Psalm 97 is that before you can see clearly in your life, so whether you're, you're trying to deal with things in the past, whether you're dealing things right in front of you, or you're thinking about dealing things in, in the future, things yet to come, in order to see clearly, the first thing you need to ask God to show you is himself. You won't be able to see those things clearly if you don't see God first. And so Psalm 97 teaches us, the first thing you ask God, when you say, I'm trying to figure this out, I'm not sure I can see this clearly, I don't know what to do here. Well, the first prayer in your heart should be, so God help me see you, so that I can see clearly. And when you see him, you know that the first thing that will happen is that you will have a glad heart. And if if you're if you're not having that glad heart, then you need to keep asking him, so that you will see him, so that you will see clearly to face what? You have before you. As you go now, receive your God's blessing. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of God the Holy Spirit be with you all and remain in your hearts forever. And amen.